Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Sitting here in the studio is editor beyond compare, Thea Lenarducci. Thea, hello. I don't know why that feels like a setup. It's not a setup. <laughs> Do you have any Italian recipes to share? I'm sort of torn at the moment oh, go on. between just giving up and accepting that, you know, summer is well and truly gone and embracing the cold, long darkness that is to come okay. so i'm sort of <laughs> kind I of having ch- i wasn't having... talk about food but go on <laughs> so i've been having like pasta pesto you know with like basil yeah. and, and keeping the summer alive is that, is that, summer, is that a summery thing i tend to i would really only eat that in the kind of spring you don't really associate basil with with the cold dark months okay you wouldn't really grow it um and yeah and embracing you know polenta <laughs> polenta with wild mushrooms and really heavy heavy autumnal foods so that's, shall we, that's shall all we, I've got for you shall we make every opening of the programme just you 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 recommend some, <laughs> some Italian recipes I think that'd be lovely I don't think so okay. I mean I mostly eat pasta so <laughs> it would get quite who doesn't love pasta quite, <laughs> quite tired quite but soon. not with Marmite we won't go down no, no, exactly. we won't go down that road again uh, coming up on the podcast today the poet Hannah Sullivan is here to talk us through the new second volume of letters by Sylvia Plath which take us right up to her final creative burst of poems and her death now I listen to podcasts as a way of getting to sleep, filling my brain with something to stop it focusing ever inward. You may be doing that now, which is weird. Anyway, it's a roundabout introduction to the fact we'll be talking Insomnia, the subject and title of a new book by Marina Benjamin, who's here in the studio. And the Peterloo Massacre was one of the formative moments in British politics and is now the subject of a film by Mike Lee and various books. Weirdly, the centenary is next year, so Claire Pettit can explain to us what's happening and why it's happening now. And we'll end on some poetry, which we've not done for a while. Sam Riviere will read his poem, Sushi Tuesday. On the 16th of August 1819, between 60 and 80,000 protesters, most of them textile workers, gathered on the outskirts of Manchester city centre at a place called St Peter's Field. They were protesting appalling economic conditions, the damaging corn laws and a lack of political representation, for this was the era of rotten boroughs and suffrage enjoyed only by the few. The crowd were addressed by Henry Hunt before he was arrested and beaten up. They were then charged upon by Hussar cavalry brandishing sabres. More than 10 people were 
killed and hundreds were injured. In an ironic nod to the famous battle of four years before, the event became known as Peterloo, the Peterloo Massacre. It's the subject of a new film by Mike Lee and a number of books, all leaping ahead of the anniversary to get first purchase on this emotive subject, because workers' rights, state suppression and enemies of the people are always timely and relevant subjects after all. To guide us through them, we're joined by Claire Pettit. Claire, hello. Hello, thanks for having me. Let's just do a bit of the history before we do how Mike Lee's tackled it. Do we know, is it very clear why the charge happened, why this protest was... Uh, ended in this way? Not entirely clear. It's a bit of a muddle. What we do know is that troops were deployed. In fact, two different regiments were deployed before the protest. So I think we know there was an intention to certainly be ready to attack the people. Let's put it that way. I think part of the problem was, though, that there were two different regiments. So there was the Manchester Yeomanry, which was a sort of amateurish bunch of kind of well-off Manchester people who had horses um, and were kind of pulled together um, as a reaction to the kinds of political protests that were going on in Manchester in this period. They were sort of, they, they pulled themselves together into a sort of basically kind of vigilante unit, really. Um, and then there were the Hussars, who you mentioned, who were the King's troops. And you had both of these regiments waiting in different places outside St. Peter's Field. And actually what happened was the yeomanry went in first and that was disastrous because they weren't trained, they weren't particularly good horsemen. And do we know why they went in? They went in because the magistrates told them to. They were, they were absolutely sent in. There's a big, big question, and I have a feeling about it, as to whether the riot act was actually read or not. Okay. Uh, in and the if, film, it is read. Um, and if it's read, in. then so the point of the riot act is if it's read, people have to disperse. They, have, they should be given an hour to disperse. So even if it was read or not, they certainly were not given that hour to disperse. And if they had been, though, they are in it, the law was they were allowed to be beaten up and even killed. Is that yeah, right? if they did, if they don't disperse within the hour, yeah. then then they take all their lives in their hands. Yeah, all yes, bets are off. Yes. And there were but, rumours. There were rumours at the time, weren't there, in the Manchester Observer that um, the Royal Infirmary, the beds had been cle- uh, cleared to to kind of make room for. Yes. No. I mean, I think I think there's no doubt in my mind, and this is my opinion, that there was a huge amount of panic in very high places about this gathering. And Why though? Because what, 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 what could have happened if this had been allowed to continue? I think they thought it might be a revolution. I mean, they really, really, really? were worried about that word. The, the R word. They were really worried about and, that. And it was it was very internationally minded, yes. this, this protest, wasn't yes, it? Yes, I'm, I'm glad you picked that up because I think that's really important. Um, it just tends to get retold. I grew up in Manchester, actually, and it tends to get retold as kind of Manchester history a bit, <laughs> yeah, sort of provincial yeah. history, in a in, you know noble, glorious Manchester, but Manchester, I think this isn't a story about Manchester. This is a story about France, about America. It's a story about that moment in sort of that, that revolutionary moment for, runs from about sort of 1770, I guess, through to about 1820, when, you know, things are really, really, really turbulent in a way that I think we've sort of forgotten, um, that actually it was possible there could have been a revolution. It wasn't at all impossible. And so Mike Lee yes. com- comes along to this. Yes. I mean, it's fascinating to me that all this stuff's coming out. I read the... I read the um, date again and think oh no it must be 1818 because all this they've really jumped the gun they really have jumped the gun so it's it's next year is the centenary this is the way anniversaries are going though isn't it it? they're going to be celebrating five years in advance because there there must be a competition must they to to, to get ahead of it Uh, why is this appeal to Mike Lee what sort of film has he he made of it I think it must have appealed to Mike Lee for the reasons you gave a very good um, version of this in your in your intro. I mean, he's always interested in the people. Who are the people and how are the people represented and is the people's voice being heard? I mean, this is a Lee, isn't it, from the very beginning, a kind of a, a Lee, a, a, I was going to say obsession, but I mean actually a, a preoccupation. Um, this is a particularly good story, I think, because he was able 
And this is actually, in a way, I'm about to say something which I think might be one of the reasons why some people might not like this film. I liked it. But I think he wanted perhaps to make a different kind of film. This is very much a kind of um, panoramic film. It hasn't got a plot, actually. No. And no central character. No central well. character. No kissing. Nothing. No, there's no romantic plot. There's no... There's nothing no, to lighten the load at really all. Really nothing. It's it's quite dour in that way. Actually. And it's quite wordy. It's, yeah. it's lots of people standing on soapboxes. I rather and like this. Yeah, um, I like it, your point about um, the film celebrating an autodidact working class oratorical tradition. Yeah, and I think that's what he's really gone for. He's really gone for the Samuel Bamfords. Um, and these guys are really very impressive. And the mm. fact that these people who really had, what, three hours schooling a week um, are able to stand up and speak the way they do with the quotations they're using from Milton and from yeah. the Bible and um, it's Pope extraordinary and so that I think it's just extraordinary. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And how actually. did that so, happen? Because I was thinking about the career of Ruskin, yes. who basically went to, to, to factories and talked Ruskin style I know, for three you hours. I'm not sure either of us could no, cope with that. I'm not, or sure, no, I'm not sure you could. But so what was it? Was it just the l- lust for knowledge that was? Because it was restricted, yes. it was it was clung yes. on to even more closely. Yes, I think so. I absolutely think so. And also, I think a, a, a will for power as well. Mm. I mean, you know, perfectly respectable will for power. I think you know, and, and a, a sense that actually you're being left out. You're not getting enough of whatever it is that's out there to be had, and you should have more. So I think a genuine sense of injustice as well, which is driving this. Yeah, kind of. It's a, a continuation of the control the means of production thing. Yeah, the, absolutely. The production is the knowledge and the culture that's. Yeah, they're that. beginning to wake up to this in a big way. I think in the 18, sort of eighteen tens and so on, when just at that moment of, of, of mechanisation, actually. Is there a, a bit of a Braveheart criticism possible here that there is a one group of baddies who are a bunch of toffs? who uh, want to suppress the good, honest working classes and the good, honest working classes who want to rise up against the toffs. I think people are going to say that about the film. I didn't feel that. I felt for a start that Henry Hunt brilliantly played, I have to say. Um, He's a a toff. And who was Henry Hunt? I mean, because he's, he's he was a Henry very Orator. wasn't he Henry Orator, Orator. Hunt? <laughs> 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 the Wiltshire Peacock, very vain, um, but a brilliant orator. Um, so he was a kind of professional orator, really. I mean, he poured. He was born with a lot of land, and he poured all of his personal wealth into the campaign for reform, which is pretty impressive, really. And he goes around with his signature white hat, so you can see him in a big crowded space, um, and gives these these rousing, rabble rousing speeches. Although, actually, I say rabble rousing, he's quite careful. And one of the reasons that Peterloo was kind of allowed to go ahead, I think, was that when Henry Hunt was announced as the Speaker, he'd done quite well in previous meetings, kind of controlling the crowds, counselling them not to bring weapons, telling them to stay calm and so on. So this film is not a straight split between... Toffs and I don't versus. think so. I mean, the magistrate scenes where you've got the magistrates watching what's going on in St. Peter's Fields and trying to decide whether to react, when to react, how to react. That's that's quite an interesting um, mix of, of views, actually. And, and there are some restraining voices there from the magistrates. So, you know, some of the toughs are saying, leave them, you know, that incredibly patronising. They're saying, leave them. They're just idiots. Don't know what they're doing. But they but they are counselling restraint. So it's, I didn't. I didn't feel that. I felt it, that what Lee does rather well is get the kind of confusion and fear on both sides. So that people are quite frightened, but the magistrates are, are very frightened as well. And is he drawing parallels to the present day anywhere? Do, do you feel this is I a so, so? This yeah. is a political film. He's a political yes, director, as you yes. say. He's always been yes. political. It's a political film on lots of levels. I think it's a political film that's that's trying to take us back to remind us that democracy is quite hard won, to take us back to a situation where actually democracy involves talking in yep. the same room. I think there's something going on there, that the oratory is about 
presence. You're there. You're listening. That kind of electric effect of a speaker does it doesn't really happen on TV or indeed on social media, which is or possibly, on social possibly media. where the exactly. political discourse now exactly. is takes it's, place. It's not a Twitter thing at all. No. Um, so I think that's actually very. Pa- I found that very powerful to be reminded of the ways that hearts and minds can be one. Um, and for if good you, and for bad, of and course. And to contribute but, to democracy, you have to do stuff. Yes, exactly. So it's about meetings. And, and what I really loved about it, it's about self-organisation. So mm. working people, getting together and having these quite tedious meetings sometimes where some, you know, there's somebody taking the minutes and somebody's being a bit boring, you know, like meet, meetings we've all been to. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but, there, but there's something wonderful about that because people can speak, they can have their say, they're allowed to have their voice heard. And, of course, they're not. I mean, there is no, there's no MP for Manchester at this point. No, that's extraordinary. And even that, when there it? is an MP for Manchester... In 1832, nobody apart from, I think, one in five adult men can vote. So, you know, this this group who are in St. Petersfields, they're not voting, even in 32. No. So there's really no representation. So I think one of the things that's political about the film is Lee is saying you can do politics. It's important, as you say, that you do politics, you do something, even if it looks absolutely hopeless. You still need to keep doing something. Which, of course, is Maxine Peake has often said that. She did, yes. a, she did a play recently about uh, coal mine protests of the wives of coal miners who... They when occu- the miners strike. Yeah, they occupied the a mine in Nottingham. Yeah, yeah. I spoke to her about it, and she said the point... One of the points of writing that play is to say that you might have to do things. And yes. it doesn't matter if a protest yes. doesn't succeed. No. Because you can make a case, and we have this with the, 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 the referendum march, Absolutely. you have it with the war in Iraq yeah. march. Does it matter if these marches well, don't I mean, change anything? I think that's a really important point for Peterloo because it, it's so easily written off as a failure. You know, oh, it was a disaster. They all got massacred, and then nothing happened until 1832. I think absolutely, it's not the way I think about it. I think these are incrementally, massively important steps, and I think that's what Lee thinks too. And the government, I mean, the government were more restrictive. I mean, yeah, the, ba- the, the short-term results were terrible. I mean, it got worse. So yeah, they rounded up even more people and beat them up, put them in prison, and the press restrictions. And this is a story about the press as well. There's a lot of press characters in this story. Really? There's the Liverpool Mercury. There's the Leeds Mercury. There's the Manchester Observer. And, and, of the Times, the, of and of course it led to the creation of the Manchester Guardian. It did, which was incredibly important. Which then yes. became the Guardian. Yes. So, yes. So, uh, and, and basically won the Corn Law repeal. I mean, it was the Guardian that really got that repeal. So this through. is is this pro-journalist? Massively pro-journalist, which is, yes. Which is quite a rare Yes, film. and also reminding us how important good journalism is, how important serious independent journalism is. Which is possibly, again, a, a timely discussion Incredibly when timely. you have Donald Trump yes. Yes. saying, I saw Tom, Tommy Robinson stood up outside the old Bailey and he pointed at a journalist. I mean, he's such an idiot, he just copies things that other people have said, but he pointed at a journalist and said, you're an enemy of the people. No, this is really distressing. And then it? a week after that, Donald Trump, CNN get the pipe bomb sent to <laughs> CNN been, and, and he blames CNN. Trump's the, been constantly blaming the press. The morning yeah. after. And so there is this feeling, I mean, yeah. also journalism don't help themselves and cock things up in a horrible in lots of ways, I accept that point, but there is an argument no, that good journalism has has saved a lot of lives, actually. And I, that, but that point often gets lost now. Yeah. So no, that's so that's it's a, true. That's yeah. something that he really does. I mean, that's very much there in the film. I think it is a film that is about the press at some level. I think there's a, a, there's other political kind of echoes there. That the scene, the, I think, the brilliant scene where the people in the crowd begin to realise something's going wrong. You know, it's horrible actually because we've all been in situations perhaps on the edge of this yeah. where a crowd is just getting a little bit out of control or whatever, and you're sort of thinking. Hmm, um, where is the exit? Um, and there's this, there's, there are scenes where people are beginning to get a bit panicky, not quite sure what's happening. Nobody can see anything. It's all blocked and obstructed and so on. He does that very well. There's something there of Grenfell, I think. There's something there of Hillsborough. That he, those echoes are, I think, supposed to be there yeah. for us. 
Because the idea is always that if there's a group of working class people, a riot will ensue just because yes. it's inevitable. Yes, and also why bother helping them because mm. they're poor? Mm. I mean, that, that, I'm afraid that is sort of in a sense, I think, yeah. what Lee's position might be on this. And so. you, can, you can sort of see that in, in the, the consecutive ways that... Peterloo has been reframed down the years because there, were very, there used to be a plaque yes. um, in Manchester which, which was very small was and dreadful. blue and it yes. didn't say anything about anyone dying. Well, it, no, it said the crowd was dispersed. Was dispersed. <laughs> exactly. As if like, like maybe it was a little bit of, I don't know, spray perfume or something. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. It and has that, been that changed. Was overhauled, yes, and now but it's a red plaque. fairly recently it's now yeah. a red plaque which apparently signifies an event of social significance mm. rather than just... Because actually the blue plaque was to Henry Hunt. It wasn't to Peter Lou, it was to Henry Hunt. Because blue plaques are biographical plaques, mm-hmm. so they have to belong to someone. Mm. So they've quite rightly replaced that now with a red plaque, which is about the people mm. and a social event, which is, of course, very much what Lee's film's about. Um, and it does now say that the crowd was attacked. Mm. And so people died. There's a little bit of, of um, revision, revisionist correction there, which is good. Well, I think you've been a very thoughtful and sympathetic viewer for Mike Lee, Claire, so thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Sleep, as well as being balm of hurt minds, great nature's second course, chief nourisher in life's feast and so on, is a great universal. We all have to do it. We all moan to each other when we can't get enough of it or can't get it at all or have it disturbed by strange visions. Well, tell a dream, lose a reader, as Henry James once said, so we'll focus instead on sleep's absence, the curse of insomnia. Marina Benjamin's book of that title tells stories of people's struggles with sleep and was inspired by her own. We have an extract in the TLS this week and Marina joins us, looking very well rested, I might say, in the studio now. It's all makeup. It's all, yeah. Let's start with your experience of insomnia, actually. What was it and why go from that to a book? Was that a kind of sitting there thinking, I've got to do something? No, actually. I mean, the book for me was a logical follow-on from my last book. So it's very much about kind of this midlife moment, which... your last book was about m- midlife it was crisis, indeed. is it? Mm, kind of. Yeah, yeah it was. <laughs> it was about turning 50. So it was about that kind of wobble and what it meant to be in your early 50s. And, um, and this book is really part of that project, in a way. It's off the back of the same energy, which is an energy, I suppose, you could say of self-redefining and um because I think of the 50s as a very self-actualizing decade as important in many ways as your 30s because it's the point at which you start rewriting your life oh, that's um, interesting accommodating what has and hasn't happened and um, again you're sort of on a threshold in both books yeah exploring exactly. a threshold yeah I think I think actually that I'm very interested in exploring thresholds and this threshold between absence and presence light and dark is as you were saying incredibly potent in terms of you know literature art uh, philosophy so there's an intersection of lots of interesting things that you can talk around when you focus on sleep so what is the literary history of sleep that interests you i mean that was a bit of macbeth i offered at the, at the beginning those various descriptions of of sleep when when you think of literature and sleep what what are the authors all that, that spring to your mind well it was more insomnia in sleep than i was in uh, insomnia in literature that i was interested in and, and one of the spurs that i thought okay i'm just going to jump in was that while there's quite a lot of insomnia in poetry there's not that much in prose okay. um and you can see why, in a way. It doesn't exactly move plot along to have somebody kind of twisting and turning and, you know, having their interior thoughts kind of going round and round in their head. It's it's not an easy subject to access. So, for me, the appeal of it was, in some ways, a formal challenge, a literary challenge, which is, um, how do you write about this state of uncertainty and this, this 
absolute state of lack, this wanting to be asleep. Um, so how do you write about ambiguity and uncertainty and to really stay there in that place for the whole duration of a book? And how do you, how, how have people tackled it? They've just not tackled it at all? No, there are sleepless characters. And, I mean, Proust's character in Marcel in... Um, in um, the first book of In Search of Lost Time, is there are long treatises on him not being able to sleep and the tricks that this plays on his mind. More recently, there's um, Matthias Ennard, Compass. That's sort of written about a, a character over a long, sleepless, sweaty night. Oh, wonderful. I don't know it. Yeah. You'll send me to the library. Yeah, no, it, we, we talked about it before. Yeah. Is there an argument, though? Because we, we did a thing on drug writing. And Toby Lishtigar, our fiction editor, said drug writing, writing about drugs is a bit like writing about sex. It's so personal, it's very, very hard to do well. Uh, because it's, although it's universal in the, how it, in the, everyone can experience it, it's very personal how it's actually received. Is there something similar with, with sleep? It's, there, it's, it's a great universal, as I said, but it ultimately goes on inside a person's head in a very individual way. It does, and that's why I wanted my kind of. There are several narratives going on through the book, so there is one personal story, the personal story of my not being able to get sleep, and trying and failing to get it, and um, that the kind of story that will be familiar, I hope, to other insomniacs. But then I try and spin it out into things that people could hook into. So I talk about insomnia and love. So there's a whole strand on kind of because because. There's a whole strand on insomnia and love, which are both defined in terms of the absences, you know, the the unknowability of the loved one and the and the inability to know sleep when you're insomniac. So there are some similarities there, and also in a sense the 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 ability to control it, who's in control of your sleeping or or not. So you you, you write about Charlotte Perkins Gilman, for example, who is given a sleep cure, and so the the, the agency, the the ability to sleep, the decision to sleep is taken away from her. The Gilman story intersects with another strand that goes through, of course, which is one of the reasons people stay awake at night is they suffer from anxiety. And I was very interested in this whole idea of women as kind of the bearers of anxiety in our culture, the kind of barometers, if you like, of of how highly strung our culture is. And it interested me that... um, the figure of the slumbering woman or uh, and the rest cure, of course, which Charlotte Perkins Gilman was forced to endure, basically complaining about being put to bed and kept there, was this idea that somehow if you could just quieten women up, if you could just put them to bed and get them to rest, then somehow you could cure the malady of society, the nervous malady of our of our overstimulated, overstretched, highly strung society. So there's a theme of that running through. That's a very Victorian idea, isn't it? The idea of sort of neuralgic women who who have to be... um, And you talk about Edward Byrne-Jones painting Briar Rose, which is the Sleeping Beauty... Yes. Why was he so interested in that? Was that... that, Is it a spirit of the age thing? Was it an idea of... That was just an idea at its time? Do you know, I think that's a really brilliant question. I mean, he was not... This isn't the only time that Byrne-Jones painted slumbering people. So there's the Mort d'Arteur and there's all kinds of um, um, symbolised Greek goddesses who are portrayed as sleeping in many pre-Raphaelite paintings. There's, of course, Ophelia, who's you're never sure whether sleeping dead, which at which point she appears in the Milo painting. So the pre-Raphaelites were kind of obsessed, if you like, with kind of supine sleeping women. The question of why is very interesting because you want to get 
beyond this idea of idealised femininity that, that the Greeks had or that, that you read about in history of art books. And it was interesting to me to think about science because this was the age of anaesthesia and it was also the age of laudanum, self-overdosing on laudanum and heavily prescribed laudanum. So the slumbering woman became, as it were, a figure for this kind of nervous anxiety of society, of, of kind of materialism um, gone mad, of capitalism's excesses. Um, all of these found their locus on the figure of the sleeping woman. Is the science of sleep still not especially tied down? You tell an amazing story, which is not really about modern science, but I'm fascinated by the sleeping sickness of 1917, which, again, this is a time of great anxiety, great turbulence in the world. And the consequence of it was, it was five million people, you say, and they either couldn't sleep and couldn't be sedated, or they were locked in a sleeping beauty Slight coma. It's a wonderful story and so little known that when I've mentioned it to people, they've said, don't you mean the flu? And I said, no, no, I know there was a flu epidemic, but this was separate. And yeah, the numbers killed a huge. I mean, I had to double check that several times because the figure seemed so large for a global epidemic at that time. And the majority of people um, did perish. So they fell into this sleep and then their systems kind of basically shut down. And it's thought to be viral. Um, now, retrospectively, when we look back, some kind of viral affliction. But there was a tiny kind of rump of these sleepers who just endured in a comatose state. And these were the people that Oliver Sacks investigated this in his great. book, Awakenings. So by the time Oliver Sacks came to them, they'd basically been sleeping for 40 years. You know, they were Rip Van Winkles. And when they were awoke, awoken, they awoke to this magical, marvellous new world in which all their relatives were dead or old, but, you know, technologically they couldn't believe what they were seeing. Mm. Well, you tell the story of Leonard L, which is a Sachs patient. This is kind of... It's tragic, isn't it? Because he wakes up and he tries to cram life into the... Because he, Does he know that he's going to fall asleep again or he's not certain he, he'll be cured? He takes a drug, doesn't he, to, to keep him awake and tries to cram all of life's experiences into his waking hours. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know, actually, if he knew whether fellow patients kind of reverted that, that the levodopa drug had a timed effect and then suddenly they dropped back into sleep. I don't know if he was aware of that. But I think the joyousness of being awake perhaps triggered a memory of prior wakefulness or he was told he was awake again after all these years and he just thought, I'm grabbing everything I can. And it, it's a marvellous story because he doesn't just grab it as you, as you would expect because that's the sort of thing you imagine you'd do. You'd be asleep for 40 years, you're going to grab it all and you're going to swallow it down, stuff it all down so that you can have that savour of that experience. But then he becomes kind of totally deluded on this. He gets high on on this overwhelming nature of the experience and it's very self-aggrandizing you know he gets messianic delusions and you know he he's manic basically <laughs> and i mean maybe that's the natural arc of the how the and drug he and he never took hold of him and he doesn't recover well no he goes back to sleep there's the they made a film of it have yeah. you seen it yeah no i've not seen the film In, it's, it's robin williams stars i can't remember who made it oh. based on the book yeah and robert de niro plays uh, leonard l and certainly That's in the film, yeah, was it was like 96 or something. Insomnia? No, it's called Awakening. So I think it was 96 or something like that. Um, and certainly in the film, Leonard does know that there's a time frame and he's he's going to go back to sleep again because all of the other patients, you can almost see them dropping. Yeah. And it's yeah tragic. Yeah. I mean, he follows, Sachs follows about 20-odd patients and they're all given letters and names and pseudonyms in the, in the, in the book Awakenings. But Leonard L's story is the most... I think affecting. Mm. I found it the most affecting, and that's why I chose to write about him. Do you think we're more obsessed now 
than ever before or in another period where sleep and sleeplessness is a pressing issue because we feel we're hyper connected we you know screens famously stop yeah. you sleeping you can't shut the world out when you shut your door anymore do you think that makes the issue of of peacefulness and repose more pressing than ever absolutely i do yeah i mean um and it also makes so the more you can't get sleep the more you fall in love with sleep the more you want it so you know we idealize sleep i think of those little sleep cabinets in in tokyo kind of public rail stations and airports where you can kind of pay for a couple of hours of kip yeah, but you can't <laughs> guarantee that once you get in there you'll be able no, to sleep no indeed um but but it's interesting i think that that we are at a point where we've really lost touch with our natural rhythms you know we are so artificially kept awake we're so buzzed by work and by socializing and by social media that we can't quite let go and I was speaking to a rather brilliant um, sleep scientist based in America who was telling me that um, he's got a psychodynamic approach to sleeping and he says the thing about sleep is he said the mind has to let the body go because sleep is an earthing it's a kind of a gravitational kind of response to the pull of the unconscious you know you sink into sleep you ground yourself in sleep and he said but our minds are so active you know we will not let our bodies rest we will not let them go and so they can't fall into sleep and that really spoke to me that spoke to my insomniac kind so what's, of the solu- self. What's, what's the solution that follows um well the kind of solution that he does is uh, a kind of psychodynamic therapy really where he kind of trains people to kind of stop their minds, really. Um, And, of course, and I talk a lot about this in the book, you know, about the way in which the mind, the the kind of activity the mind pursues in sleep and how how difficult it is to sort the wheat from the chaff because there's a lot of chaff, there's a lot of kind of crud that gets regurgitated, goes round and round insistently like a horrible form of mental torture. But then occasionally, you know, rarely, unexpectedly, a profound thought will suddenly kind of coalesce out of the wisps of the dream and then you chase it down because you want to hold on to it Mm. um so it's a very strange state mental state the insomniac state i think and uh, again it was very interesting to try and write it because i tried to write the book in such a way that mimicked the insomniac state so that even if you're not a sleepless person you might have some kind of uncomfortable jerky feeling of what it felt like to think that way mm, i think you've you've done a beautiful job of it um so thank you thank you very much for coming in marina benjamin thank you hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com hey it's Paige desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
It's difficult to think of many poets for whom the publication of a second volume of letters leads to sensational headlines of the sort usually reserved for pop stars and footballers. Sylvia Plath is one such poet, her husband Ted Hughes another. Take these two, published in quick succession in the Daily Mail. I still love Ted. The knowledge I am ugly to him now just kills me. Newly discovered letters by Sylvia Plath reveal her heartbreak at Ted Hughes's infidelity. And then, Sylvia Plath's letters from the brink. They were written to her psychiatrist as her marriage to Ted Hughes imploded amid his infidelity and her madness. Madness is, at least, couched in inverted commas there. Q, of course, a rebuttal in the Evening Express. Ted Hughes' estate calls claims in Sylvia Plath letters absurd. This week, in the TLS, Hannah Sullivan considers both volumes of Plath's letters, which together cover a 20-odd-year period from 1940, and she looks for decidedly more nuanced insights into this celebrated poet who wrote almost all the poems we know her for, including Daddy, Lady Lazarus and Ariel, in the final, much mythologised months of her life. Hannah Sullivan is with us in the studio now. Hannah, hello. Hello. Um, So we might start with the as you put it, most newsworthy aspect of these collected letters, if anything, just to kind of puncture that or move beyond it. Um, The group of 14 letters that Plath wrote between January 61 and her death to her psychiatrist in Boston. There's a clear sense in your piece that that group of letters isn't perhaps as important as people would suggest it is. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly important, I think, but um, the claims that are made in the letters maybe need to be assessed within the volume as a whole and within a sort of general practice of correspondence. Um, the first letter Plath writes after a miserable time at Christmas at Ted's house where she has an argument with his sister, Olwyn, and then she falls silent and then starts writing again in the summer of 1962 after she realises he's having an affair. The correspondence is hard to interpret in a way because we don't learn very much from the volume of letters about um, Ruth's replies. Um, Sylvia says at the very end of her life in a letter to someone else that she received one or two Mm. replies to 14 letters. It seems to be two um, short replies. Um, Sylvia is desperate for replies. She keeps asking for if they can have a paid letter correspondence. That's the most unbelievably sad thing in the world, isn't it? I'll pay you to reply to my letters. Mm. Yes, I mean, it also fits into a pattern that I think had been established earlier in Boston um, when, when Sylvia and Ted were there, when she was let off paying, basically, by Ruth Boisha because she didn't have enough money. Um, and there are some sort of hints in Sylvia's journals that she found this quite worrying and felt that it was, in, in a way, an act of aggression that the, the psychiatrist was giving her less attention than she would have done otherwise because she wasn't able to pay. So money was a sort of vexed issue in their relationship. Do you feel that the last letters have always ripped out of context is, is the context of how she wrote letters has been has been lost to a lot of people um yeah sure i mean before this these two volumes were published the only letters we really knew sylvia plath by the, were the ones to her mother and it's quite an odd thing to do to publish only letters to one person and as soon as they were published people noticed a certain kind of breezy brightness a sort of falsity of tone that they assumed typified only her relationship with her mother but but this tone actually seems to be pretty common in, in many of the letters not in, including to female friends you know to new acquaintances including at times to the psychiatrist. Um, there are a whole lot of questions about her relationship with um, Ruth Boyce. The, the volume, I think, doesn't really answer. One question is, in fact, about her, her sort of medical notes or her medical history. Um, reading between the lines, it seems as if she hadn't actually told her very sort of competent and caring and quite eminent GP, Dr. John Horder, in London, that she'd ever had a, a suicide attempt or a mental breakdown before. And so was, on the one hand, writing letters, you know, which she wasn't getting replies to, to somebody in Boston, long way away. And on the other hand, not getting any kind of psychiatric, you know, or mental health care at all at home. Um, why Ruth Bolsher didn't, you know, forward any of these notes or contact anybody 
in the UK. I don't know. Um, and how desperate did Sylvia appear in these? She these seems letters? pretty desperate. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's recognisably um, crying for help. Yeah, I think that that absolutely, especially when she sort of has written three or four letters in a row without a reply, and she's saying, you know, the most difficult thing is writing into a void, not knowing if you're going to answer or not. Uh, it's it's already destabilising. Please just tell me kind of what to do. Please write back, and then you know. And then that's that's something that we, I mean, none of the, the well, the two possible replies that she would have got, mm-hmm. those, those aren't reproduced in this volume at all, are, are they? So we're, we're kind of left to wonder what, what the answer could have been and what difference it could have made. Yeah, I'm not sure why they aren't. I think on the whole that it would have been um, very useful to have contextualised quite a few of these letters with just a little bit of the incoming correspondence, which is a normal sort of practice in a scholarly mm-hmm. edition. There's not a huge amount of information sometimes about who the correspondents are. And actually even a little bit more contextual inf- information about the relationship with Ruth Barnhouse Boy, she would have been really useful. Mm. Um, some the, These two letters have been quoted in, in some part. It's hard to know, you know what percentage of them um, elsewhere. And so I'd seen little bits of them before. They, they're quite nutty letters in themselves and they certainly don't seem very professional. Mm. And they immediately say to Sylvia, you must leave Ted, you know, you must get a divorce. Before all of this, we should say, mm. because these two collections, they cover a considerable yeah. chunk of yeah, time do, yeah. and 23 years, I yeah. think, of, of a 30-year-old yeah. woman's life. So what is that like to read in its, you know, 1,000-odd page entirety? What kind of images emerge? I think other people have said this, but it's, I mean, it's a pretty torpid read in some ways. I wouldn't really recommend it as kind of a, <laughs> a bedtime book because there's a great deal of repetition. Um, it's sort of unevenly dispersed in that Sylvia seems to have had the practice of writing letters sort of five or six on one day and then not writing any for another week. So there's actually quite a lot of repetition of news items across the letters. There's a great deal at the beginning of this second volume, which is just after her marriage to Ted about cooking and baking. I mean, really a phenomenal amount, especially about ovens and meat thermometers, about the joy of cooking, about wanting sort of boxes of pie crust to be sent across the Atlantic. Um, Does she seem happy then? Is that that sort of happy domesticity that we don't associate at all with her? Or is that put on? Or what do you feel when you read that stuff? I think you get the impression from the bell jar, you know, from from the poem sometimes, all of Sylvia's writing, she really liked eating. So she seems happy about consuming the things that she's made. Um... I don't know that it does seem entirely happy, though. I mean, in the journal, she does talk about um, you know, the danger of falling into domesticity, um, you know, not reading the, the joy of cooking. This is something Tatiza talks about as well, not taking it too seriously, not reading it instead of doing work. She seems pretty anxious about her capacity to make home, I think, in, in some cases. And she's sort of writing to Aurelia, her mother, looking for advice, um, domestic advice. You know, how often should I bake a cake? You talk um, about two mm. Sylvias, and it seems this, this domestic goddess kind of Sylvia is, is one of the two Sylvias. Mm, yes. And then the other Sylvia. Yes. I mean, I think that this isn't a polarity that, you know, in any way is sort of mine, but um, I think it became clear it was a puzzling sort of feature of the Letters Home volume that it just seemed to show a Sylvia Plath who was so utterly different from the major poet, um, you know, this never nice, in Elizabeth Hardwick's word, um, person who wrote the, the poems in Ariel. Um, it's just impossible to put the two together. I mean, of course, that might be chronological. The, as you said, the poems in Ariel were written in a very short space of time. Um, at the very end of her life, and you know that that's covered by you know perhaps a hundred pages of of this volume, which itself is almost a thousand pages long, and the first volume is, is longer again. So, do you see a tonal um, shift in that last hundred pages? I mean, the problem is you, you're you're viewing it, knowing the ending, and the, the, it seems to me the impossibility of Sylvia Plath is we we only read her knowing how the story ends. I don't know. That's what I was hoping, to be honest, when I was when I was reading it. I was hoping that the kind of false self, you know, the mask was going to fall off, and it was going to be 
you know, searingly candid. You do a little bit, but not entirely. This, the kind of false self does re- resurrect itself. They're, they're you know, painful in their own way. Letters from as late as November 1962 when she's moving to London to her mother about you know, how lucky and buoyant she is, about how men look at her in the street, about the new clothes that she's wearing, about how she's the sort of toast of literary London. So I think the flashes of, of candour, um, which especially appear in Letters to Female Friends, um, and especially perhaps friends in, in England, people like Ruth Fainlight, who also had small children, those are valuable and, and they, they provide a break from the rest of the volume, but they're by no means the only tone. So um, is she, I mean, is she fooling herself or is she created a persona for letters? Do you, do you, is, that, is, it, is it impossible to say? Because ultimately we can never truly empathise with, with the person. To the extent that we can see disparity between the way she wrote in her journals, um, I think Ted Hughes was right in saying that the, the voice of the journals, you know, when he edited them, um, was closer to being the true Sylvie. The Sylvie he says that she never showed to anybody, including really to him, in real life than, than the voice of the letters can be. Um, there's a lot of exaggeration. Um, there, are, I mean, there's also quite a lot of self-contradiction in these last letters, particularly around things like the question of whether Ted Hughes was going to support his family or not. It seems that he, in fact, gave her about £900 in the months after he left her, so it's sort of six-month period. Um, and had promised to give her £1,000 a year, but she repeatedly tells people like, you know, some people in Boston, um, like Olive Prouty, her benefactor, that she's left with nothing. She's completely destitute. And it's hard to know whether that's a cry for help in some more sort of general way, whether it is actually a request for money. And you point um, out again, um, after I think he, he departs and, and she says again and again, she sort of tries out this re- rhetorical phrase in, in a mm. number of letters about being deserted. I've yeah. been deserted. I've, yeah. He has deserted me. And and so on and so forth. I mean, this idea of candour that you mentioned just then, um, we should come back to that because the editors of this volume, mm. Peter Steinberg and Karen Kukil, they use the word candid, utterly candid, to mm. describe Plath's letters, I think especially the later ones. Mm. You, you think that's a mistake? Yeah, I do. And I think I think in a way that's been obvious for a long time. I mean, even since sort of early biographies like the Stevenson biography were putting together a sort of range of evidence from the last months of Sylvia's life. It's clear that people that knew her, people like Gillian Becker, who wrote a little memoir about her, didn't really find her to be a candid person or felt that she was constantly presenting different selves to them. To some extent, this is maybe linked to her kind of obsession with being a writer or with with immediately remediating experience into something that sort of sounds good. I mean, um, I'm just looking now at this letter she wrote to uh, Ruth Boysher, um on the 29th of September 1962, which says, Ted has deserted me. Um, I have not seen him for two weeks. He's living in London without address. But then the next sentence... Um, tonight, utterly mad with this solitude, rain and wind, hammering my hundred windows, I climbed to his study out of sheer homesickness to read his writing, lacking letters, and found them sheafs of passionate love poems to this woman, this one woman to whom he's been growing more and more faithful, describing their orgasms, her ivory body, her smell, her beauty, saying, in a world of beauties he married a hag, talking about, now I have hacked the octopus off my ring finger. Um, anyone, that's in quotation marks. So the editors say that, two poems have been identified as, as um, maybe having been written to Asia, but this line, <laughs> I've hacked the octopus off my ring finger, has certainly you know, not been found in Ted Hughes' collected works. It, the image of the octopus is a very plath image. So, yeah. well, whether that's complete invention, I, I don't know. The letters, as you say, they are very clearly, and that was a good example, they're an exercise in sort of self-staging and, and, yeah. and ideas that she then does advance in many of the poems. So I want, we have a clip from... Uh, from Daddy that we can play as read by Plath um, Mm. for the BBC in 1962. Daddy, I have had to kill you. You died before I had time. Marble heavy, a bag full of God, ghastly statue with one grey toe, big as a Frisco seal. That was, um, I think, part of the second stanza there. Uh, But one of the things that is so clear in that, one of the most striking things Mm. is how controlled her performance is. 
That's true, isn't it? I mean, it's a it's a very theatrical sort of careful performance. She talks in the interview about how this sort of spoken voice of poetry had become more important to her that in the Colossus she was writing poems for the page and now she's writing them um, for the ear. But it's not the ear in the sense of a naturalistic sort of spoken voice. It's a very theatrical um, poem though, isn't it? In, in, in the sense that yeah. she, she's referring to experiences that aren't hers Right, at right. all, I mean the, the whole the whole concentration camp imagery, and, and it's not her, is it? it it's it, she's no. she is staging versions of of herself and her her identity, even in the poem. Yeah, absolutely, and she's also um, you know blurring things that happen in real life. So one interesting thing that comes out in the letters is, well, her claims that in the summer of 1962, Ted keeps presenting himself as sort of the Führer, as a Nazi, as Hitler. Um, there is some way in which the you know Ted is clearly in that poem, isn't he, alongside her? Her father, the two have become conflated into one sort of big, you know, male bogeyman. I mean, in reality, her feelings towards Ted and her father seem, you know, including to the end of her life, to have been rather different. The other thing yes. that, that strikes me from your review of these letters is the way she was so pro Ted mm. earlier on. And you make this point that, you know, she was so keen for Ted to be successful in America and almost the poetic entity that was Ted Hughes yeah. was kind of Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes merged together. There was a and maybe when she's quoting poem that doesn't exist, it might be her poem. It, did she even see sort of the, the fact that she and Ted had coalesced at certain points? Yeah, that's certainly true. I mean, I think that that is also something you don't really get from reading Ted's letters or, you know, biographies of Ted, like the recent Jonathan Bate biography, that in some ways he was kind of her invention, um, that she, you know, used the phenomenal capacity she had for sending out work. She talks about always keeping 20 of their manuscripts out, mostly his, you know, typing up his work, sending it to competitions. And his first book is published because she types it up and sends it in. I'm just sort of managing, almost like an agent, really, his his literary career, um, you know, encouraging him to do certain things. Um um, and, and certainly encouraging him to move to America was seems to have been an incredibly useful thing for him to have done, despite the fact he didn't enjoy it and it wasn't creatively um, sort of very important for him. Um, it was very important in terms of establishing himself as you know the preeminent you know, English poet of his generation very, very quickly. As soon as that any, any sort of gap starts to appear between them, um, that is much more problematic. Weirdly, that seems to be precipitated um, perhaps by the publication of, of Sylvia's first book um, when suddenly you know, a lot of people feel surprised that Ted has a wife who isn't just a, you know, a house, an American housewife who makes amazing cakes with maple pecan frosting but is a very substantial, um, serious poet in her own right. And then you end up with this extraordinary... I mean, the final poems come in a, in a relatively short period of time and as Thea yes, said, the, the most famous ones are done in a sort of three period but Ariel, the collection, is pretty much done relatively near the end isn't it yeah i mean this this was known i i simply um didn't know i think like many people i had always had the idea that she wrote the aerial poems in this flat in london that had originally belonged to yates with the blue plaque you know i think when i read sylvia plath at a level this was certainly what i thought and um, something that became clear to me in reading the letters was that she finished the aerial manuscript in her mind although it is different from the aerial as the volume that was published before she arrived in london and say so that it really is a product of living in this house that she and ted had made together at court green in devon um, once she comes to London, she's still writing, but they weren't poems that she was intending to include. The last one is Death and Co., um, which, you know, if you look at the sheet of the sort of original aerial contents, is penciled in as an addition, and that was written in early November. I suppose it remains to be seen whether we can, whether a volume like this can help us to kind of rest a nuance from the story, or, or whether we're kind mm. of condemned, you know, like Janet Malcolm said, to just there's a psychological impossibility to not take sides whether whether we can stop a volume like this just becoming another thing to feed the myth machine well i think that it does um 
because it, because actually, if it's very sort of self-evident um, lacunae, including the whole question of sort of incoming correspondence from Dr. Borisha, and actually their relationship during the time that Plath is in Boston, where it seems possible that that Borisha actually persuaded her that she and Ted should have children. Certainly, this is a complaint that Ted makes, right? That, that Sylvia and Ted had decided they wouldn't have children for a while because they wanted to work on their careers. And the early letters straight after the marriage, she keeps saying, "We're not going to have children, Mum. We're going to go to Italy and you know be writers." Suddenly, something changed, and you can see in the journals she got very worried about not being able to have children, about infertility. I think that is linked to the therapy that she recommenced with with Dr. Boyce, who'd also talked her into having, it seems, um, electroconvulsive therapy in the first place. So exactly what role this woman really played in the mental history of Sylvia Plath over a long period of time and what the relationship between the psychiatric relationship to begin with and, and the sort of friendship that developed might have been. And that really the question of why she wasn't replying to these very desperate letters or, or contacting anybody about them. Um, all of this, I think, seems to me a very important question now to be answered. So it's a study that remains to be done. Yeah, and the, the whole question actually also of her medical treatment, I think, in the last few months of her life, you know, she was placed on a kind of antidepressant that isn't prescribed very much anymore. And um, that she had had a bad reaction which she to had, But which previously. no one would have known because her notes had never been forwarded which she, she probably should have been hospitalised while she was taking it, you know, because it can give people the, the sort of ability to act in some way, um, but without re- really relieving the mood symptoms that, that, you know, have been present all along. Um, certainly her, her GP, Dr. Horder, was trying to get her a place in a, in a hospital um, when she died and thought she shouldn't have been left alone. And she, she did actually kill herself just a few minutes, really, before mm. a nurse was meant to arrive at the flat. So she sort of fell... Um, between also by moving from Devon to London, you know, in in between the gaps of sort of different types of medical care. It's well, amazing that we're yeah. met with all the scrutiny that these mysteries still remain. But we'll have to leave it there. Mm-hmm. Hannah Sullivan, thank you so much. Mm, thank you. That's almost all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Claire Pettit, Marina Benjamin and Hannah Sullivan. Do make sure you're subscribing to the TLS and to this podcast. Next week, we shall, in common with the nation as a whole, be commemorating the end of the First World War, looking at its history and poetry. And this week, we shall end on a poem too, won't we, Thea? Yeah, an unsettling number by uh, Sam Rivière, a poet whose collections include Kim Kardashian's Marriage from 2015, and with a title oddly in tune with our Peterloo discussions, actually, uh, his first collection from 2012-81, Austerities. So, yes, this is Sam Rivière reading Sushi Tuesday from this week's paper. Sushi Tuesday. I was almost myself, eating alone early in a Japanese restaurant. My repeat visits had turned sinister. The couple who ran the place continued to not recognise me, even by week eight. My backpack was a physical comedy. I went twice to the gents. Everything had already happened. I was in psychodynamic analysis and learning to historicise, keen to improve on my earlier efforts. My external examiner had almost wished I wouldn't try when my attempts to do so were so jejune. The waitress's sceptical farewell when I flourished my CU soon, but I was starting to prefer her version of events. As I left, they switched the music off, abandoning the set, as if it wasn't clear it was all for my benefit. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.